Good morning. We're going we're gonna to get started with a word of prayer and go from there. I invite you to bow your heads. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to be here, to be together, to share this time, to share the blessings that you have given us to, as it were, dig deeper into the mine of truth that is in your word, but also to learn to dig deeper into everything that it is that we do for you, including agriculture. And I ask for your blessing. I ask for your spirit. I ask for wisdom that I don't have. And I ask for us all to be able to have uh, your spirit as well for understanding, including myself. And thank you that we can come to you and ask for these things and offer our gratitude in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So growing and using corn. Uh, how many people, just curious to know where we're working with, how many people have grown any kind of corn, sweet corn or field corn, on, and like home garden, anything like that? So we got, okay, home garden, okay, like quarter acre or more, awesome, more than an acre, more than 20 acres, yes! All right, I'm going to be asking you questions later. <laughs> okay. So, uh, corn, as we know it today, was, was not always like it is. Corn was originally domesticated in Central America. If you ask modern secular archaeologists, they'll tell you it was something like 10,000 years ago or whatever. I don't remember the exact date, but the... Original specimens of corn that have been found in digs in Central America look like what is on your left, okay? So it actually looks something more like wheat. It was a kind of weird bushy grass, and each kernel actually had a husk on it, similar to what you see on the, the full corn husk now. So the um, Central Americans uh, started selectively breeding this useful grain uh, over the course of time, I'm, I'm not totally sure because I'm getting my information from secular archaeologists, but we know for sure that corn in its modern form was the predominant uh, staple grain in Central America at least 500 years before Europeans arrived in North America. Okay, so that, that much we know for sure. Um, and it is endemic to the Americas. It, it was not originated anywhere else. It was eaten, by the time Europeans arrived, it was eaten from the tip of South America, um, clear on up into uh, kind of the northern parts of, of the states and even a little bit of Canada. But it, it didn't get that far north. Um, as you know, it tends to appreciate warmer weather <laughs> and longer seasons. Although uh, modern corn has been bred to have a shorter season, we're used to like 75 and 90 day sweet corn most of the um, more heirloom varieties of field corn, which is all that um, Native Americans were using, uh, most of those are 120-day crops, right? So you can imagine if you're going up further north and your last frost is anywhere after, you know, mid-May, and you've got a 120-day crop that you have to actually get to the point that it's dry enough to store, you can see why it didn't make it much farther north, but it was, it was uh, grown widely through the warmer climates in all of the Americas long, long, long before Europeans arrived. Okay? So corn did actually get taken over to Europe 
uh, after uh, Europeans came, after Columbus arrived, he brought it back, and uh, that's where we get polenta from. They started growing corn in Europe and finding ways to use it as well. Um, the one thing they did not bring with them is the process of nixtamalizing corn, which is that's going to be the next class, so teaser. Okay. Okay, so there are two kinds of corn that are grown in America today. Uh, that are grown anywhere in the world today. Uh, the first one is going to be what we call sweet corn. There are major uh, physiological differences between sweet corn and field corn. Okay? Now, you can harvest field corn at the milk stage. It will not taste sweet. Okay? If any of you have gone to Mexico and you've gotten the street corn, the elotes, you know, that they make, that is usually field corn that is harvested at the milk stage. Right? That's why it doesn't have a lot of sweetness to it. Now, um, the, the sweeter varieties of corn are catching on. And some of the street vendors are starting to use that, but it's, it's not very common. That's more in touristy areas. If you go to, you know, if you really go out into the calle, if you really go to the street to get the street corn, it's going to be field corn harvested at the milk stage. Uh, sweet corn, though, as we grow it, it, uh, it is harvested much younger. It's harvested at what's called the milk stage. Now, milk stage, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch over to a different screen for a moment. Okay. By the way, I have the Audioverse recording already, so this is really for you guys. Can you hear me pretty well without it? Yeah. Is anybody struggling to hear me at all? Okay, if anybody struggles to hear me, let me know. I'll grab the mic, I promise. But Audioverse is getting their thing without that mic. So now I'm hands-free. Okay, here we go. This is a uh, printout that I was given by... A uh, very knowledgeable and helpful friend. Um, he's sitting right up here if any of you want to talk to him. Uh, this has all of the uh, various growth stages of corn. As you can see, it takes you through even the number of leaf stages and all of the different reproductive stages. There are different stages of the reproductive cycle of corn as far as when it produces the ear and the silk and the tassel and everything. Um, right up on through maturity, and there's a helpful chart down below that talks about all the different stages of the vegetative growth uh, from emergence uh, up to tasseling and clear on through the reproductive stages, okay? So there is a point of maturity uh, for all corn where it reaches what's called the milk stage, okay? So you've got silking is going to happen first. We're going to go through all this in a little bit more detail. Uh, but just to give you a preview here, so when we talk about the milk stage, okay, the milk stage is right at that point when all of us know that we should harvest our sweet corn. If, if you know when you should harvest your sweet corn, <laughs> don't want to assume anything. If you have grown sweet corn, you're going to harvest it at the point when the silks have dried out, okay? You know that if you've got a little bit of green on your silks, you're going to have really tender corn, but it's not going to be very flavorful, Right? So the milk stage is at the point when the kernels have gotten developed their full color. And uh, if you were to take your fingernail and pop one of the, um, pop one of the kernels, uh, wear safety glasses because it might squirt in your eye. It's not toxic. It's fine. Um, I've had it happen. And, and what the fluid that's going to come out is going to be a milky color. Okay? You know, at that point, the corn is actually starting to develop complex carbs. It's taking those, those uh, 
the simple sugars and develop them, developing them into complex carbs. Right at the very beginning of that stage is the point of maturity at which you're going to ha uh, harvest sweet corn. Oh, thank you so much. Look at this. That is much easier. Thank you. Yeah. Now I can look at you and my computer. Okay. So many things. Alrighty. Now we're cooking with heat. Okay. So that's the milk stage. Now, that, uh, by the way, that document is in the handouts page uh, on the website. So if any of you were getting the emails previous to the conference and you found, and um, I don't know if I can make it available for audioverse. We'll see. There might be a copyright thing with that, though. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we'll look into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we'll find out. So it is available currently on the handouts uh, for the conference, at least. So you can look at that. I've printed one out. By the way, if you print it, uh, you want to print it on um, 11 by 17 or, or find a way to print it onto uh, either 2 or 4 um, eight and a half by 11s. Otherwise, uh, even for my relatively young eyes, the print is tiny. Okay. So sweet corn is harvested at the milk stage. It is bred primarily for sugar content and slow conversion of sugar to starches after harvest. It is also often bred for texture. Uh, many sweet corns that we know and eat and grow today are hybrids. In other words, they're not open pollinated. They do not, br they do not uh, breed true to type. If you were to save your seed from a hybrid sweet corn and plant it again the next year, you will get a variety of different sweet corns out of that seed. You will not have something that is the same as what you had the year before. But all hybrids are like that, and there are many advantages to hybrids. Uh, the disadvantage to hybrids is if you're trying to save your seed, not going to work. Okay. If you want to save your seed, we're going to talk about that in, in more detail, but just to start with, if you're wanting to save your seed, I would highly recommend finding open pollinated seed, okay. open pollinated or heirloom. The only difference between open pollinated and heirloom is how old the variety is. That's all that means. You can have open, I have an open pollinated variety of watermelon that I, I got from my mentor, the guy holding the big watermelon in the picture last night. I got an open pollinated variety of watermelon from him. It is not considered heirloom because it's only about 30 years old. Okay, so that's the only difference. When that seed, when that variety, that, that uh, phenotype, particular phenotype of watermelon, reaches the age of 75, we can call it heirloom. Okay, so 40 years from now. So sweet corn, uh, it, it has significantly more sugar and, and the starches uh, at the point of milk stage the, the simple sugar to, to complex uh, carb ratio is significantly higher on the sugar side for sweet corn. Uh, again, if you were to harvest field corn at the milk stage, it would not taste anywhere near as sweet as sweet corn does. So that gives you an indication of the sugar to starch ratio. Um, and generally, most varieties of sweet corn are not going to get much, much higher than six feet tall. Uh, you do have some varieties that are going to reach seven and eight feet, but that is the exception these days. Most modern varieties do not reach more than uh, six feet tall, okay, as far as sweet corn goes. Field corn, very different. You do harvest 
field corn at what is called the black layer stage, the full maturity stage of sweet corn, of, of field corn. What that's going to look like is right up here, okay? So once you've gotten to uh, your, your dent stage, the kernels are still drying out. They're still usually going to be at around a 50%. Um, uh, it's not quite moisture content at this point. It's hard to measure moisture because it's still very high. But the kernel milk stage, when you got to full maturity, um, what you're going to see here, and they have a, they have a close-up of it. Uh, can you see my mouse very well from back there? Uh, yeah. Let me see. What can I... I don't have a pointer, but we'll go down here. Here's uh, another view of what they're going to call the black layer stage. So this picture is if you were to cut the kernel in half and you're looking from above. Okay, So that's what all these are, by the way. Um, this is what they're calling the black layer stage. That's at the bottom of the kernel. And we're going to have some corn for you to look at, too, so you can see this. At the bottom of the kernel, you're developing that black layer. That's actually when the, the kernel's connection to the cob, that's when that completely dies. Right, and that black layer forms so that the kernel is now completely independent from the corn. Okay. By the way, if you want to save sweet corn seed, you have to get to this stage. Okay, you can't harvest sweet corn at the milk stage and, and then replant it. It might grow, but you're going to have a very, very, very low germination rates. So leave it in the field. Yeah, if you're saving your sweet corn seed, leave some in the field until you've reached this stage of maturity. Okay. All right. So field corn is primarily bred for kernel size and number, okay? Because you want bulk, okay? You want some grain. You want a product at the end, all right? Now, you want the same in sweet corn as well, but the, the, the primary characteristics they're breeding for are different, okay? Uh, and stocks can get up to 15 feet tall on field corn, okay? I don't know if it's as common these days. Most field corn is probably around 10 feet. Would you agree with that? Yeah, okay, there you go, even, so, there you go. So 15's still common, uh, but uh, harvesting can be a, a task too. I've seen some field corn where you, you might feel like you needed a ladder to get some of those st uh, stalks. Is that, yeah? yeah. I've got 15-foot um, Okay, yeah, so we've got a, a couple people confirming for the Audioverse recording. The, yes, 15-foot uh, field corn is, is definitely a thing, Okay. Uh, so that you can imagine that makes harvesting fairly challenging if you're doing it by hand. Now, if you have a, a big tractor harvester, uh, totally different story, right? But uh, again, going back to the major differences here, stocks are significantly taller, okay? And uh, yeah, and they're going to be much more starchy. And, and of course, by the time uh, they've completely matured to that, to that black layer stage, um, there are no simple sugars, pretty much. There are virtually no simple sugars left in that kernel, okay? It is starch, solidly starch. Uh, I will hear your question, but I, I forgot to, um, just a quick announcement. Um, please write your questions down, and I'll be, I'm, I'm going to give plenty of time at the end to answer them. Is that, does that work? Okay, thank you, though. Um, I, sorry, I forgot to mention that at the beginning. Uh, it'll make this go much smoother. All right, these are the basic parts of a corn plant. All right. Um, 
Now, if you were to go back through that handout, you'd see the different stages, but this is, this is a fully mature corn plant, so you can see all the different parts. Uh, the, the first part that's going to emerge as far as uh, the reproductive cycle of corn is going to be the tassel. That's at the top. Uh, all corn is going to have both the male and female reproductive parts, um, and they can self-pollinate to an extent. It's not recommended, but uh, it's better to have your corn planted in blocks, high populations, and a lot of cross-pollination within your, your gene pool. Uh, you're going to have just much better um, vigor, and you're going to keep all the characteristics of that seed for much longer, uh, for many, many more generations that way. So at the top, we've got what we call the tassel. That's where the pollen comes out. Down here, you've got your ears, and the silk is actually, uh, it's, in, in other flowers, you would call it the pistil. That's the part that, that uh, the pollen sticks to, and then it takes that, the pollen, the, the male gamete, and brings that down into the, the, the flower, which is the, the, the beginning of the ear. That's actually a corn flower, okay? And those silks sticking out are the pistils. And when fall, pollen falls and sticks to those pistils, the, the silks, it is brought into the flower and fertilizes one kernel. One grain of pollen, one silk, one kernel. Wow. Okay, so for every kernel that's on an ear of corn required a silk and a pollen. Okay, so pollination is vital. All right, if you, there, there are ways, and we're going to mention pollination here again, but just a precursor to that. If you have poor pollination on your corn for any reason, you're not going to get corn. It's not going to produce. I've seen it happen. People will get these, these ears where like half of the ear has some, has some corn at the, on the bottom, some kernels, and then the other half is just empty. And you've got mature corn and nothing on the same ear. That was a pollination problem. Okay. So it's very important to make sure you get good pollination. We're going to talk about that. But knowing these other parts of the corn can be helpful. Of course, the leaves are fairly obvious. But uh, another thing, some things to look at. You've got down here these roots. At the bottom of the stalk, you've got these prop roots that develop. And I, I struggled to find like a, a really clear picture of it so you could really know what you were looking at. But you can see this. You can see this here. If you've got this ground level here. These prop roots actually come out of the stalk above ground level. And what they're doing is helping to, to stabilize that corn as it gets taller. That's, a, that's a, a thing that you can look for. Those prop roots are also going to give you a good indication of where, this, where the corn is at in its reproductive cycle. Okay? Uh, they start to do that usually around tasseling. Uh, and if they're not doing that and the corn is tasseling, there might be a problem. And that could be some sort of a nutrient deficiency. It could be not enough water. You never know. Um, that's something that I'm not a super expert on. I've never had corn that didn't put out those prop roots, uh, but I've heard that it's a thing and it's something to watch out for and it's a problem that you can address. Uh, all right. And yeah, the, um, by the way, something fun about corn, these internodes here, uh, it's kind of like sugar cane on the inside. So when the corn is really mature, uh, when the corn is, is about at the milk stage, if you've got sweet corn and you chop the, the stalk, uh, above the the above the ear, uh, the corn will still mature. By the way, uh, as long as it was pollinated, 
and then you can you can strip that stock down and chew on it and suck on it and it's sweet. I do that all the time. <laughs> Doesn't work with field corn though. It's it's not as tasty. Okay, so specifically we're going to talk about growing field corn as far as growing goes. The everything applies to sweet corn that applies to field corn except for harvesting. Harvesting is going to be different for field corn versus sweet corn. So for field corn, seed selection is the starting point of any crop that you're going to grow, right? Seed selection is very important. You cannot grow better corn than the seed that you started with. Okay? Start with them. And that's, that's every crop. So popular varieties. Hickory King, Reed's Yellow, Hopi Blue. There are tons more. There are some that grow better in some areas than others. Uh, for instance, the Hickory King is not recommended to grow it north of Pennsylvania. Okay? So if you are north of Pennsylvania... You might want to find a variety that works better in your area. All right. These are just some really common ones. These are probably three of the most recognizable names within field corn. Does that sound accurate to you? What other varieties would you say are, are pretty well known? Well, in our area, uh, I think Trucker's Favorite. Trucker's Favorite. Dent Yellow Dent. Okay. There you go. There's a couple more. Uh, Something that is important, again, as I mentioned, you want to look for open pollinated varieties if you're planning to save your seed. I have not seen very many hybrid varieties of field corn. Uh, I think if you got anything that's not open pollinated, it's probably genetically modified. I'm not saying that as a blanket statement, but I haven't been able to find hybrid varieties of sweet corn. Is that accurate? Field corn, corn sorry. Yes. They're used widely commercially, but I, I haven't okay. Okay, there you go. So used widely commercially, but haven't seen them available for home gardeners. Um, if you wanted a hybrid variety of field corn, just want to reiterate something here. Hybrid does not mean genetically modified. Okay, Genetically modified is where a company like Pioneer Seeds or Monsanto actually takes foreign genetics and incorporates it into the corn. Okay, Hybrid is where you have a particular variety of corn and another particular variety of corn and you take the pollen from one and pollinate the other right and then you save that seed that's a hybrid and they're they've, they've got these particular strains that they've bred for hybridizing because they have certain qualities and that first generation of hybrids is going to produce a uniform seed type that's going to have all of the qualities that they're breeding it for Okay, so it, it's, it, it's two non-genetically modified corns being crossed. That's an F1 hybrid, right? And most of your sweet corns are going to be that. I grow, I grow hybrid sweet corn, and uh, the flavor is... I haven't had an open pollinated corn that compared, right? Uh, but you cannot save your seeds. So, uh, especially if you're doing this in kind of a subsistence farming situation, if you're growing this as a staple crop on a homestead, you're primarily intending to grow your own food, seed saving is a good idea, right? So you want to make sure it's open pollinated. Very key. All right. Uh, planting. So you want to plant early enough that the corn will be mature before frost. Okay, we're going to go back to this maturity slide. I should have had this earlier, but here it is again. Okay. But you can see here, what they're saying here is that the grain is not ready for safe storage. 
Okay, it's still got too much moisture in it. As soon as it hits that maturity stage, you need to let it dry out again a little bit before you store it. But you could harvest and dry it out somewhere else if weather's going to be a problem and if you have the space. However, if you leave it out in the field, it will not be affected. All you need to look out for is lodging. You want to make sure those corn stalks don't fall over because it's then, then your corn's getting on the ground. You're going to have problems with various kinds of uh, funguses and, and things that can, that can ruin your corn. Uh, so you want to look out for that. But harvest, uh, let's see. Oh, here we go. Frost does not impact yields after this point of development. Okay? So you could leave this stuff, like if, if your corn were to have reached the stage of maturity and then a frost happens, no problem. You can leave it out in the field. Leave it on the stalk out in the field. You'll have these brown dry corn stalks with ears on them. See it all the time in the Midwest, driving around in the middle of December in Wisconsin. Tons of dry corn they haven't harvested yet. Not a problem. Okay? That doesn't affect it. Moisture is the biggest issue and lodging. Those are the things you need to watch out for at that point. Okay? So you want to make sure you plant it early enough to get, uh, mature before frost. And by the way, when you buy the seed, it says 115 days. That's to maturity. So that's what you need to look at when you plant it versus when it's going to be mature. 115 days, count backwards from your last frost. That's the latest you can plant it. So most corn you want to plant one and a half to two inches deep. It's not ever recommended to plant shallower than one and a half inches. Okay, Corn has no problem coming up out of the ground. Uh, now, if you have a really hard clay, you might want to address that. The solution's not planting shallower. Uh, it can help, but you could do something like get some peat moss and even help to cover your seed you know, with that a uh, little mix of some peat moss and something else to, to, to help weigh it down. But address your heavy clay soil is the best uh, solution versus planting shallower because uh, if your clay hardens up, it doesn't matter if you have a half inch of clay above a, a little corn kernel trying to emerge. If you've got a, a chunk of clay that's hardened above a corn kernel, it doesn't matter how shallow it is, it's never coming up, right? So planting shallower is not the solution. Corn needs to be about a good inch and a half to two inches deep. If your, corn, if your soil has reasonably good texture, it will emerge through that, no issues. It's a very, very vigorous seedling. They have tons of energy and they're a mono, uh, monocot. Is that the word for it? Uh, they're not a dicot. They don't have the two, dicot they don't have the two cotyledons when they, they emerge. They just have the one blade. And it comes up like a little spear right out of the ground. No issues. Okay. Um, I plant, uh, and I've always been told to plant, uh, between 7 to 10 inches in the row and 30 inches between rows. That is especially helpful if you're doing anything with a tractor. We plant and cultivate our sweet corn with a tractor. Uh, so we have uh, just an old school cultivator like they used to use. Um, some probably still do the, with the floating gangs to cultivate your corn. Um, that's how we do most of our weeding. And having those 30-inch rows facilitates easy cultivation. If you're doing everything by hand, your row spacing can vary a little bit. You could plant your corn a little closer, but it's, it's a little hard to walk between the rows if you get much closer than 30 inches, right? Uh, because imagine, you think 30 inches sounds wide, but when you have corn, six-foot corn stalks on either side with leaves crossing on front of your face, walking through that 30-inch row even can feel a little tight. So if you wanted to plant much closer, you could get away with it, but, but 
continuing to work in that field is going to be challenging. So 30-inch rows tend to work very well. If for any reason you needed to, you could plant a little wider, 38 or 40-inch rows. Um, the caution with that is that there's a lot more weeding to do. Okay? You're going to have more area to weed and manage until the corn gets tall enough that the leaves close the row and weed pressure reduces. Okay? So up until that point, anything wider than a 30-inch row is, is more... So 30 tends to be the ideal. Not too much to manage, big enough to work in. Okay? Um, farmers used to plant on 38-inch rows for sweet corn, uh, and they found that they were able to reduce that, and, and they actually increased yield per acre because of the tighter spacing. And then if they got any closer, it was too difficult to work with equipment. Right? So that's kind of that, that sweet middle ground of 30 inches. Okay, pollination. Here we go. Corn is wind-pollinated, and your neighbor's corn's pollen can travel up to a half mile onto your corn. Okay? And in some cases, depending on geography, topography, wind conditions, it can travel even farther. All right? So if you're trying to save your seed then you need to find a way to isolate your corn. Also, if you're trying to grow uh, field corn for grain and you're trying to grow sweet corn on the same property, you need to isolate those as well, especially if, if you're trying to save seed for any of those because it wind pollinates. It will travel, and you'd be surprised. We, had, we, had, uh, we grew some, some blue corn, and it was completely on the other side of the property, and, and the wind never blew that direction. We always had a, a steady southerly wind so we had blue corn over on one side of the property and this was at that farm in Oregon and we had sweet corn over on the other side of the property and you know these were hundreds like like five six hundred feet apart okay we had blue kernels in our sweet corn <laughs> not a lot but there were some okay and and by the way corn will corn will um will be affected the current generation of corn the, the corn that you're growing will be affected by cross-pollination. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very unique. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, if you have a question about that, write it down. It, it's very unique to corn. Not a lot of plants will do that. If, you, if your tomatoes cross-pollinate, you won't know until you plant that seed. With corn, if they cross-pollinate, you can see it right away, and sometimes it even affects the flavor. Right? The kernel actually develops according to, to the genetics that are there from the pollen. So... Really interesting point about corn. So how can you isolate your corn? There's two ways. By the date that you plant it. Look at that days to maturity. From the time that it's mature, go back a couple weeks or probably a month. That's when you can anticipate tasseling. Right? And you can get very specific information about varieties of corn if you go to your seed supplier. Um, if they don't have the information available, they should be able to take a phone call, and answer that information for you. Okay, so I know that the variety of sweet corn that, that we grow um, is two weeks from tasseling to maturity. Okay, so I know that those last two weeks, and, and, and you need to give a little buffer on that. Sometimes because you have some really good growing days, life cycle speeds up, right? Sometimes you have some not so good growing days, life cycle speeds slows down. So you could have that change anywhere from three to four days, either side of that window. So you need to look at your days to maturity. And if you're going to plant some field corn, anticipate when that field corn is going to be 
tasseling, right? Anticipate that it's going to start silking shortly after tasseling and that you're not going to have sweet corn tasseling at the same time. So you can isolate them by date so that there's no sweet corn tasseling at the same time as your field corn, right? Otherwise, you're not going to be able to save your seed. Another way you can isolate them is by distance. If you have a big enough property to keep your corn a half mile apart, that would be great. <laughs> you can do that and save your, your corn seed relatively safely, especially if you don't have really strong winds and just the right geography that, that funnels that wind into your other, your other crop, your other uh, field. Uh, or uh, probably the more practical and easier way to do it, especially if you have neighbors and you can't control what they plant or where they plant it, is to bag your corn. Okay. <laughs> Seems like a lot of work, but keep this in mind, all right? So this is after it's passed. This is the silking. Okay? But then it's not going to You can save the you can bag the tassels and tie them up and save the pollen. I don't have a picture of the tassels being bagged. Okay. But uh, this is so this is a picture of bags on the silks, okay? There are bags you can put over the tassels and you can save the pollen from your tassel. And then you can put bags over your silks to protect them from getting pollinated by something you don't want them to get pollinated from. And then you can take the pollen that you collected from your tassel and then go ahead and go pollinate your silks with that. Okay. It, it's, it's not nearly, what was it? It's a lot of work. It is a lot of work, but it's, I mean, talk to seed savers, people who grow seeds or who grow hybrid seeds. This is what they do, right? And if you're trying to save your seed, in a situation where you're growing a staple crop for yourself, this is the only way to know that you're going to have pure seed if you've got neighbors that grow corn, or if you want to also have some sweet corn to eat through the summer, but you want to have some corn to make your tortillas through the winter. Okay? Like me. So, so yes, putting a bag over the silk before it has a chance to get pollinated is the only way to ensure that you're not getting cross-pollination. If there is corn tasseling, within that half mile radius at the same time as your silks have emerged, okay? And, and honestly, it sounds like a lot of work, but keep this in mind. If you've got one good ear of field corn, you're gonna have hundreds of kernels, okay? We're talking like two, 300 kernels in some cases, right? Some of them have six, don't they? Yeah, six to 800, right? I was thinking of sweet corn, and <laughs> even that tends to be more. So let's, let's, let's reevaluate. Six to 800 kernels, on that one ear of sweet corn. You're planting those seven to 10 inches apart down the row, okay? And- So you don't have to do your whole crop. No, just you just need to do enough to have the, cor this, the seed that you need. Okay, that makes sense. Oh. If you're saving seed, if you're saving seed, you just need to do enough to save your seed, okay? Which, again, it's recommended if you're doing open pollinated, you probably want to save at least 10 years, right? That ensures you have a good level of genetic diversity within your population. And you probably want to save pollen from at least 10 plants, right? And make sure that they all get nice and crossed up, okay? Is that, that preserved, because even within an open pollinated variety, you're going to have genetic variation. And you need that genetic variation. You start to lose that genetic variation in your open pollinated variety pretty soon you could have your ears starting to get smaller and smaller and smaller and you can't figure out why and you'll never be able to get them quite back up to the same size without very particular selective breeding. And that can be very challenging. How, how do you mix that? How do you, how do you do that? 
Go ahead and write that down. Yes, please remember for the end. Um, I'll be happy to answer that, though. I, I love those kinds of questions. So growing field corn, talking about management. Most corn needs an inch of water per week after they've reached the second leaf stage. Okay. Um, it's highly recommended to do your waterings as heavy, less frequent waterings. Right? Corn, it's good for corn to dry out a little bit. Think about it this way. A lot of us are gardeners, right? How many of us have known somebody who let their water die from, or let their garden die from not watering it? How many of us know people who have killed their garden by watering the heck out of it? Right? That's usually people's problem. Watering too much, right? It's actually a lot of plants, it's really good for them, and corn is included in this category, to make them look for that water deeper in the soil. Okay? If your roots are sitting in a nice, moist layer of soil all the time, one of the things that... Okay, so plants, are, plants don't have a, a, a neurological system like we do where they're thinking through cause and effect and, oh, if this, then that, right? Plants don't operate that way. Plants are signaled to do things by hormones within the plant. Okay? And those hormones are produced by environmental conditions. There are other factors at play. Whitmer McConnell could tell you tons about that. But at a very basic level, plants operate based on a set of hormones which are produced by environmental factors. So when you have a root that's in the soil and there's part of the root is dry and part of the root is wet, that stimulates a growth hormone to tell the root to grow further into the water where the water is. So when that moisture layer drops in your soil, your plants send roots after it to search for it. Okay, this is especially important with plants that make a taproot like melons and other cucurbits. If you keep them spoiled, you keep them watered, the second they get just a little bit dry, they're going to wilt. Okay, you make them search for that water deeper in the soil. When they start producing melons and you give them water, they're going to blow up like crazy because they got this massive root system because they had to hunt for water their whole life. Okay, corn does the same thing. It benefits from less frequent and deep waterings. So for us, I know that if I run the sprinklers that we have, if we run those for five hours, that's an inch of rain. So they get five hours once a week. They get one inch of rain once a week. You let them dry out for that. And we live in Arizona, by the way, right? They get dry, but you let them, they'll survive, I promise. Now, look for signs of, of them stressing from being too dry. Okay, you don't want to kill them, but you need to find that balance. Okay, the leaves start curling up. Good indication they're way too dry. Okay, you don't want your leaves curling up. That's a sign of stress. So you start to see that, then you know, oh, I should probably water. But here's another thing to do. Go and dig at the base of your corn plant. Okay, if you can dig three inches before you find water, I promise there's roots there. Okay, it maybe it was too windy one day and the, 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 the plant couldn't do evapotranspiration fast enough to pull water out of the soil and, and bring it into the rest of the plant because the wind was pulling the water off faster than the water could come up through the plant from the soil. But if there's moisture there at the root system, pretty safe bet you don't need to water. Right? So this is something I always tell people, people that are working with me uh, and they want to water something. I say, did you check it? <laughs> Stick your finger in the soil, dig a little hole, 
feel how wet the soil is there. If it's moist, you probably don't need to water, right? But that's dependent on plants. Like greens, like lettuce and kale, you want to keep them moist, right? So, so each plant has different needs. How many of you have children? They all have the same basic needs, right? But some of them you need to treat differently, right? According to their temperament, plants are the same. Okay. So less frequent heavy waterings work the best. You can water, you can furrow water them. So if you, uh, if you hill up your corn, right? If you, if you have a nice uh, furrow between your corn rows, you can fill those furrows, kind of flood irrigation. That works really well as long as your, your field is relatively flat, especially if it has a slight slope. Um, I've seen people really successful with drip, uh, but corn has no problem with overhead water. Loves it. In fact, I think getting the water on the leaves even seems to help it. Um, but that's just a personal theory. Corn should be cultivated frequently. I cultivate the corn before each watering. Okay, so uh, that could be as simple as walking through with a, with a hoop hoe, getting the weeds at the thread stage, wire weeder, something like that. See, uh, weeds are a lot easier to kill at the thread stage than they are when they have developed a root system and you have to actually physically remove them. Okay, when they're at the thread stage, if you just disturb a weed in dry soil, they're dead, especially in a nice sunny day where they desiccate in like 20 minutes and they're totally dry. You got dead weeds. Okay. Certain weeds, you pull them out. If they have much of a taproot at all, they might have to sit in the sun for a lot longer before they dry. That's more time before you can water. So when you walk through your cornfield with a wire weeder and you get everything at the thread stage, you can go right over to your irrigation system. As soon as you're done cultivating, turn it on, water that corn, give it the one inch of rain that it needs. Good to go. Okay. Uh, if your weeds are too big and you do that, all you did was transplant them, right? So corn should be cultivated frequently. Um, I personally, like I said, I do it once a week because after each watering, you germinate a new batch of seeds, right? So there's going to be weeds again. You're going to have to cultivate. You're going to water. All right. Uh, pests. Um, corn. Corn boring worms, the ones that eat the ear of the corn, that's going to be probably your biggest problem. Um, that's the most common. Uh, black aphids can get into corn, and they usually just make a mess of the outside. They don't usually damage the ear, but if you have a really bad infestation, it'll really, really badly affect your yields, okay? Because they're stressing the corn plant, and the corn's trying to produce corn. So if you've got a really bad infestation of black aphids, you could reduce your yield significantly. And then there are all kinds of different fungus that love to grow in and on corn. Okay. Depending on your environment, these might not be a challenge to you in the Southwest, not really much of an issue for us. Uh, you get up into Northern climates where you start to have cold, wet falls. You need to be aware of the, the fungi that can grow in, in corn. Okay. Um, and the, these will be things like, like late blight, um, various kinds of, uh, oh, what are those? Versilium wilt, I think, is the, there's, there's, there's quite a few. Um, I haven't, they're not very common. Have you encountered any of the fungus that affect your corn? A smut colony. There you go. So, uh, so what he said was he was, there's a, a disease they call smut. And uh, he was working in a field that had open pollinated and hybrid corn. And the smut was actually on the hybrid corn, didn't touch the open pollinate. So there's a good uh, testimonial for open pollinated corn right there. Have you had any uh, problems with, with uh, fungal diseases on your corn? No. No? I grew it one 
Ah, uh, okay. Okay, awesome. All right, so fungal diseases are the main thing to watch out for, but um, if you're harvesting it in ideal conditions, right, you're not letting it get rained on and sit out for long periods of time, you're not putting it up when it, doesn't, when it has too high of moisture content, most of these fungal problems are not going to be an issue. They can't really penetrate the kernel that easily. Um, there are certain kinds of aflatoxins that are produced by the fungus that can get onto the corn. That's the main thing to watch out for. Nixtamalization kills that. Okay. Setting up for the next class again. Uh, but the best, um, the best integrated pest management strategies, the best biological controls that are widely available, parasitic wasps. Depending on your region, if you go to like Arbico Organics, A-R-B-I-C-O Organics, uh, they have different strains of parasitic wasps that, depending on your region. What these are little tiny wasps. They go and find uh, the eggs that the moths lay, and they lay their eggs in the moth eggs. So they kill the worm before the worm gets a chance to hatch. You have to keep uh, reintroducing these pests into your cornfield through the reproductive cycle of the corn, uh, but it, does, it has been proven to significantly reduce the presence of corn-boring worms in your corn. The other thing is uh, the Bacillus thuringiensis. We usually know it as BT or thuricide, and that is a bacteria that only affects the caterpillars, the larval stage of insects. And uh, when they ingest it, it destroys their digestive system and they can, stop, they can no longer eat. They stop feeding within an hour or two of ingestion and they die sometime later. Um, so those are organic controls. Um, if you're not worried about organic, then um, I've found that seven works really well too. Okay. So, and it's the... I'm not, I'm not advocating for it. It's the last resort, okay? But if, if you're growing it for yourself, you may not be worried about it. If you're growing for market and you need to have a product that's not full of corn earworms, you know, you got to weigh what your priorities are, right? I can throw all of this away or I can spray some seven. Um, so I found that to work pretty well. Okay, when to harvest. Field corn should be dented and hard. You're looking for a 14% moisture content. Now, how are you going to decide if it's a 14% moisture content? You could actually take some, weigh it, put it in the oven at a low temperature for several hours, let it cool, weigh it again. How much weight did it lose? That's a way that you can actually measure the moisture content of your corn. Okay? Uh, if you don't want to go to that trouble, you shouldn't be able to uh, deform it with your fingernail. Okay? And if you try to bite it, it should be pretty hard. In fact, I wouldn't advocate for biting it too much because it can damage your teeth. Some of the corns get really, really, really hard. Um, but it should be dented on the back of the kernel. It should have that dent, and it should be really hard. Okay? And it can be left in the field if needed, but again, keep an eye on weather. Your corn starts getting wet and staying out in wet conditions. You're not losing moisture, and you're just inviting fungus. Okay? So this is part of the planning stage of when you plant it. You want to make sure you're going to be able to get that corn out of the field in time. If you know that you have wet, cold fall where you live, you probably want to plant earlier so that you can harvest sooner, so you're less likely to encounter that. If your winters are dry, leave it out there. Okay, how to harvest. Uh, you can harvest field corn by shucking it on the stalk and break it right off the ear, at the ear. 
So you can take that field corn when it's nice and dry, just peel the shuck back on it and that, that whole ear will break right off, okay? And you won't have to deal with very much as far as silks or anything goes. You'll just have nice uh, husked uh, ears of corn to deal with. You can then take that, it stores well on the cob, so if you have the space for it, you don't have to worry about shelling it right away. Just throw it somewhere until you have time to get to it and then you can shell it. But um, shelling it and putting it in bags takes up a lot less space. There's a lot of ways to shell it. You can get these on eBay. Um, this is a corn sheller. You just turn that handle and it pulls all the kernels right off the cob and spits the cob out. Really handy device. You can do it by hand. And then people have started getting really creative on YouTube. Corn sheller right there. Try to get the one with the flywheel on it. Oh, yeah. There's, and these, they have ones that they even have a big pulley and you can hook it up to a motor. Oh, wow. Careful with your fingers, though. Get the belt in. Get your finger in the belt. Not a good thing. So people have gotten really creative. You can look this kind of thing up on YouTube. By the way, this works for popcorn as well. So almost everything we said applies to popcorn. They're mechanical shellers. Um, I don't know why he's not going into a box. I'd... <laughs> All you had to do was put a box there. Anyway, so there's mechanical shellers. So what can you do with field corn? Eat it. Right? That's what we're all here for. Corn can be ground into meal or flour and used in cooking. So this will make great cornbreads, waffles, cakes, polenta. Uh, you go on down the list. If you can think of a way to use corn flour or corn meal, if you take the raw, dry corn and mill it, coarse ground is going to be corn meal, cornbread, you can use that in cornbread, waffles, pancakes. My wife makes these really amazing uh, corn, corn pancakes. I'll be right with you. Uh, and if you grind it coarse enough, that's polenta. If you grind it really fine, you can use it as a flour. That goes great in certain kind of cakes uh, and various other ways. Or you can process it into nixtamal or hominy. That's going to be the demonstration of the next class. And that is what you're going to do if you want to have hominy or grits or if you want to have pozole. Tortillas, tamales, pupusas, empanadas. You go on down the list. That's, you're going to have to go through the process of nixtamalization in order to get to those. Okay, and then you're going to have to grind the corn from there. Uh, what else can you do with field corn? You can feed it to your chickens and cattle if you have them. I don't know if goats are a huge fan, but they, I've heard they eat everything. Uh, or if you have a lot of space and you don't live in an area with trees... There are pellet stoves and biomass burners that you can convert to burn field corn. Okay, so you can actually grow your own burner fuel. If you have the space, the equipment, and you wanted to, you could also burn it. Uh, that's also quite a common thing to do. So, uh, any, we can open up for questions now. So I know there are quite a few questions, those of you that had them written down. Um, did, do you remember what your question was, sir? That's true, that's true. So, so what he was saying was that uh, most of the genetically modified varieties actually do not get as tall as the open pollinated varieties of field corn. Uh, and and I'd, that's, that's actually accurate. Um, I've, I've noticed that as well when you drive around the, the big corn growing areas. All right, so I know there are other questions. Do you remember yours? I did. Uh, um, I can say that I have nixtamalized plenty of American field corn, and it works very well. Okay. So, oh, sorry. The question was um, the, the, uh, the gentleman was saying that he has tried nixtamalizing African field corn, and it didn't work. I'd love to know I mean, more about that. But it, was just like it was really hard just after hard. the process yeah. of nixtamalization. Yeah. 
Uh, and he was wondering if I've experienced that with American sweet corn, and I was—I I definitely have not. I've, okay. I've nextimalized plenty of it. So, uh, hands, I saw one back here. Oh, how many ears of corn can you anticipate getting per stock? Um, I'd say you can definitely plan on two, but some cases three or four. Does that sound accurate to those of you that have grown a lot of field corn? Yeah. Depends, yes, depends quite a bit on the variety. Hickory King, only one big ear per stock, but sometimes two. So you can definitely plan on one. Um, my, experience with, my experience with corn is, is two. Uh, generally, that second ear might be smaller, especially with, uh, I've noticed that especially with sweet corn, the second ear is a little smaller. So your first ear is always the biggest. You can expect that to be the case, and they will get smaller. All right. Popcorn tends to make more ears. Yes, ma'am. Oh, uh, corn is a heavy feeder. What do we fertilize with? I didn't even talk about that. I personally fertilize with uh, dehydrated composted chicken manure that I get from a chicken farm like three and a half hours away. <laughs> so we bring a trailer and buy three tons and bring it back and that lasts us a couple years. So, and it's, uh, it's a high nitrogen chicken manure. Uh, it's an 842 and it works very well for us. Um, I fertilize with, the, with that at the beginning of the season, and then we will spray trace nutrients through the season uh, about once a week, or once, a, excuse me, once every two weeks or once a month. We'll hit them with a good trace mineral solution uh, when they're at about the fourth leaf stage, and then we'll do that again about every two to four weeks from that point on. And usually the second spraying we can do with the tractor sprayer, and after that we have to do it with the hand spray. And that's pretty convenient, too, because then we can go through and spray our BT at the same time, most of the ca most cases. Uh, yes? Um, if there's anybody else who's used a cultivator with coulters, they'd be able to answer that question. I actually don't. My cultivator doesn't have coulters. Um, it's just the shovels, just, just the shovels on spring gangs. And they're the, they're the duck foot style of shovel, uh, so they're kind of like the chevron. Um, I cut off the ear on the sides that are next to the rows or the, the person who owned it before me cut off the ears on that, and that was a very wise choice of them because you can actually see where you're cultivating now <laughs> instead of killing corn as you go, why is that dead? I don't know what, the, what happened to that. So uh, I found that without the cultures, I, 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 like if you, if you set up your three-point and really tighten things down so that your cultivator's not swinging around on you and you manage your tractor well, um, I found that the cultures aren't necessary in terms of stabilizing the cultivator, and cultures are really most useful when you have organic material on the soil. So if you have, for example, if you are cover cropping and doing a no-till set setup where your cover crop is forming a mulch on the soil, then cultures are going to be essential. But in my case, they're not. Uh, we, we do grow a cover crop, but we till it in. And maybe I used the wrong term, but I, what I meant was the cultivating, what actually turns up the soil. The okay, the so, so the shovels then, yeah. Um, so when they're young, so when I do my first cultivation at the second leaf stage, um, I would say I have a good four inches to either side of the crop. So I got an eight inch wide band. And there's a lot more work to do with the hoop hoe. So you have to walk each row with the hoop hoe and, and finish off your cultivation by hand that way. But the crop is so young, you don't want to th throw too much dirt. You can actually bury them. And then that's even more work. You have to go through and unbury them on top of still having to go do the hoop hoe part by hand. By the time they get older, I can usually move that in about two inches um, for the second cultivation. And then I actually am moving dirt up onto the, to the plants themselves and hilling uh, that row. 
And by the, the third cultivation, uh, if I, I can usually still get through by the third cultivation, I'll move that back out to the eight inch mark and I'll go faster because it m throws more dirt up onto the row. And there's usually very little hand uh, cultivation that needs to happen at that point. Because you've thrown the dirt on the row, it buries and smothers the, the weeds at that point. So there's very few weeds uh, if you do that on your third cultivation. And that'll work for sweet corn or field corn if you cultivate that way. If you have a cultivator for your tractor, if you don't, um, I'd, I'd recommend a, a, a wheel hoe. And there are wheel hoes that you can use that will actually uh, straddle the row. There's double, double wheel. They're hard to find, um, but they'll straddle the row and you can actually push down both sides of the row and hill and cultivate your corn that way. And then you can switch it out to a, a big stirrup hoe setup to go between the rows. And if you're doing anything less than about a quarter acre, that is still a lot of work, but it's totally doable. Yes, sir. So if I'm planting like... No, yes and no. All right, so the question was, is that your? Yes. Okay, so the question was, if you have multiple varieties of corn on the same property and they all cross, and you save that seed and plant it again next year, are you going to get just a mix of those varieties? And the answer is yes, but the answer is also no. So you could get some that are going to breed true to type, is what we would call it, where it breeds to, to make the same corn as what you had before. But what you're going to have more of is crosses of those two that are going to present qualities of both parents to varying degrees. I look more like my mother than I look like my dad, but I'm still half my dad, right? So you're going to present the qualities of one of the two parents probably more, and in a lot of cases, you're also going to have corn that presents the qualities of both parents evenly. Uh, so that's going to be the bulk of your population if you were to save intermingled seed like that. Yeah. Now, if you wanted to make a new variety, you could do that, right? <laughs> Uh, and you can see what, see what comes out like, oh, I like that one. Okay, we're going to grow that. So then save, isolate and save the seed from that. Well, you might have a new variety out of that. But it takes about four generations to stabilize. So you'd have to do it four times before you're going to have a new corn. Yes, sir. So you couldn't see any sweet corn. Yeah. So, uh, so what he was saying was he grew field corn and sweet corn together, and it all became field corn when it was done. Uh, and that's the reason so that the first generation, the kernels that you're getting on your cob, are the result of the pollen that produces them. So you're going to have a mix. In that case, you're going to have a mix. You're going to have on those cobs, what you're going to have are some of the kernels that were pollinated by the sweet corn, some of the kernels that were pollinated by the field corn on both varieties, right? So what you're going to end up with is some really starchy, weird field corn and some kind of awkward, sweet, tender field, uh, vice versa. You know what I'm trying to say, right? So the, the, the kernel that is produced on the cob is actually a product of the pollen that made it uh, just as much as it is a product of the, the plant that it grew on. Yes, sir. With corn specifically? Okay, so the question was, do I have experience intercropping uh, with corn or with anything else, or if anybody else has experience with that? I, I can tell you I do not. Um, uh, I will tell, uh, what is intercropping was the question. Did, did you have something to answer to that? So the what the gentleman was saying was he has intercropped, and this was what I was going to answer to your question, was that Native Americans traditionally did intercrop beans and squash with their corn. They did not plant their rows at 8-inch spacing, and they did not plant their rows 30 inches apart. Okay? So uh, because corn produces so well, right, you plant one kernel, you're getting like a 1,000 kernels back. Okay? So if you plant a pound of corn, get ready for a 1,000 pounds of corn. Right? So the, in, the, the Native Americans knew that they didn't need to plant acres solid with corn like we do in order to be able to get through the winter, 
right? So they did not plant nearly on the spacing that we do. So they could get away with intercropping in corn. In, uh, corn is so vigorous that when it closes up that row, weeds can't grow. That should tell you something, right? So weeds are not growing in that field because it's closed the row. It, you can plant something else out there, but you need to adjust your spacing on the corn if you're going to want to intercrop with anything. Uh, there were other, and what was intercropping is the practice of planting crops next to each other. Some people call it companion planting, so where you're going to plant in the same bed. For example, it's common practice in greenhouses today, and we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to take probably like two more questions to wrap up. So you two gentlemen back there that are raising your hands, I got you. Um, green, common practices in greenhouses today is that you're, you're trellising tomatoes, and on that same bed, you're going to plant radishes or some kind of quick crop. You're using up that space. They work well together. There are certain crops that you don't want to intercrop together because their root systems create different soil biomes, so they don't work nicely, right? So that's another thing to keep in mind. Yes, sir. Okay, and that's the road. So he was saying the road, Rodell? Rodale Institute has good information on intercropping with, feet, uh, with uh, corn. And they're uh, using nitrogen fixtures as well to even feed the corn through the life cycle. Yes, sir. Absolutely. S yes. So the question was about the quality of the chicken manure. I, I said that I fertilize with, uh, with chicken manure, dehydrated composted chicken manure. Uh, and if you have, prob if there could be problems with, uh, you know, if the chickens are fed some sort of hormones or anything like that. And absolutely, yes. You want to uh, vet any fertilizer, fertilizer source that you're going to use on your crop, right? Um, if I know that the chicken farm that I'm getting my manure from uh, has a habit of using, feeding the chickens things that I don't want in my field, then I'm not going to buy that fertilizer and you're going to need to look elsewhere, okay? And if a fertilizer company is not transparent with you, it's probably not a company you want to deal with. Okay, uh, but there are like fertilizing is such a problem these days. Uh, to some exp uh, to some extent, you also need to do the best that you reasonably can within practicality, and and leave the rest up to the Lord. Because honestly, um, if you were to say, "Well, I'm going to drive halfway across the country because I'm going to try to buy this fertilizer, and I know they don't have any heavy metals in it." I mean, I admire you for that, but I'm not going to do that. I, I don't have the time or energy or, or finances to be able to accomplish something like that. So um, we, we really, I, I'm, I have 10 minutes. We need to transition to the next class. So I'll be happy to answer your question at another point in time. If any of you want to ask anything else about sweet corn or field corn or anything like that, um, thank you so much for coming. I want to let you get to your next class. Okay. All right. So welcome. Uh, so this is unofficially a part two of the one before so if you want to learn about growing this the, the corn go back and listen to the audioverse recording if you were already here then you're all set okay so we're going to talk about nixtamal okay uh so we're gonna pray yeah uh just write it on the table would be great thanks so much you're amazing okay let's pray father in heaven thank you for um, these amazing things that you provide us, these amazing things that you've taught us to be able to uh, utilize the resources you've given. And I pray now that as, uh, as we um, talk together, I, I ask for wisdom. I ask for wisdom I don't have. I ask for understanding. I ask for you to be present and for you to really be the teacher. And I thank you that we can ask for these things in Jesus' name.
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.